Energy Transformed is a short podcast series brought to you from the team at Energy Insiders and Renew Economy, Australia's best informed and most read website focusing on clean energy, news and analysis. Energy Transformed is also brought to you by Ashurst, a progressive law firm offering global reach and insight, combined with local market knowledge and understanding. Storage and transport are going to really unlock the key to a broader hydrogen economy, but they really do need new technologies and they need R&D investment and they need the cost to come down. The most powerful policy tools Australian governments can use are those that enable or incentivise the creation of load at scale. Good example of this is um, the conversion of government fleets or the use of renewable hydrogen in distribution networks Those sort of things will actually really help incentivise scale and help get projects up and the industry at scale in this country. You're listening to Energy Transformed, a podcast webinar series that looks beyond the headlines to take a deep dive into Australia's energy transition. Hello, I'm Paul Kernow, a partner with global law firm Ashes based in Sydney and global co-head for energy. Welcome and thanks for joining me. With the recent wrap-up of the annual climate negotiations at COP26 in Glasgow, the big focus now is the challenge of implementing the 2030 targets, and beyond that, the longer-term commitments to 2050 net-zero emissions. Central to these efforts will be decarbonising our energy systems across electricity, heating and cooking, as well as the transport sector. Together, these make up the majority of most countries' emissions. Renewable energy will play a big role in decarbonising power grids and electrifying our transport systems, but renewable energy won't get us there alone. A wide range of strategies and technologies will be needed to tackle emissions across all parts of the energy, industrial and transport sectors. In its most recent World Energy Outlook, the IEA says that maintaining a strong pace of emission reductions post-2030 will require a relentless focus on energy and material efficiency, electrification and a strong role for low-carbon liquids and gases, including low-carbon hydrogen. Now, hydrogen isn't a recent invention. Fuel cells were conceived over 200 years ago. But the current hype around hydrogen and the role it can now play in decarbonising the power, heating, transport and industry sectors is a much more recent phenomenon. Hydrogen, both green and blue, will be important technologies in reducing greenhouse gas emissions globally, and Australia will be critical in meeting the demand for hydrogen. ARENA estimates that Australia will be exporting over 3 million tonnes of hydrogen each year by 2040, which could be worth up to $10 billion each year to the economy. No matter which way you look at the hydrogen hype, many big questions are thrown up. How far away is the green hydrogen economy? Will it be commercially viable by 2030? And what are the regulatory and economic barriers to achieving it? In this podcast, we take a look at what we've already learned from early stage hydrogen projects. Our guests will share their insights on the challenges and opportunities for hydrogen from both a business operation and investment perspective. Kate Vidgen is the Global Head of Industrial Transition and Clean Fuels at Macquarie Capital leading the development of Macquarie Capital's strategy beyond renewables via products such as renewable hydrogen, green ammonia and sustainable aviation fuel. Rob Grant is the Director of Energy for Fortescue Metals Group, where he oversees the company's energy growth initiatives, including the transition to renewable energy and the development of a hydrogen business. 
And the discussion today is hosted by my energy partner at Ashes, Kate Phillips. We hope you enjoy this enlightening discussion. We've got some really interesting topics, I think, that we need to cover today. Uh, some around the key barriers um, at a policy and market level, and then some of them more around the provenance of hydrogen and some of the physical considerations that we're seeing in the developing market. And I think probably as a start, looking at um, the IRENA Green Hydrogen paper, they identified a few key barriers or several key barriers to the uptake of green hydrogen being high production costs, um, lack of dedicated infrastructure, energy losses, lack of value recognition, and a need to ensure sustainability. Rob, I think my first question for you is, at a broad level, the infancy of policy and a somewhat unclear or developing regulatory environment can be seen as one of the reasons that is um, that we can't overcome some of these key barriers to scale up the green hydrogen market. What do you think are the key market signals that you need from governments? And where do you think that a government would be best placed to spend their energy in terms of regulation to really bash through some of these barriers? Sure, thank you, Kate. And a couple of you know, interesting points to unpack there. I mean, I think we need to acknowledge that we're having this conversation about green hydrogen as a, an opportunity to decarbonise hard to abate sectors of economies that can't be electrified or i.e. can't have renewable electricity um, displace the thermal electricity. We're having that conversation because renewables are the cost that they are. They've come down so far in cost that we can start to think about how to create green hydrogen from them um, at a level which is affordable and will become more affordable uh, by those hard to abate sectors. Now, 20 years ago, we were saying the same thing about renewable energy itself. We were uh, advocating that we could build and produce wind energy uh, and a few years later, solar energy um, because the world needed it as part of the way to decarbonise and not uh, increase the problems of climate caused by climate change, but it was twice the price of the fossil fuel equivalent. So wind energy was twice the price of coal-fired energy in the national electricity market at the time. And through good initially target setting, so the renewable energy target was put in place with a 20% by 2020 target, uh, and then good policy legislative backup, uh, we were able to pull through, create a market for a very substantial amount amount of new renewable energy in the system that demand along with what was happening in similar with similar mechanisms across the world with feed-in tariffs etc yeah pulled through a very substantial increase in supply of wind and solar uh, and that and that re that resulted in cost reduction which caused further demand and this virtuous circle of um, economies of scale of manufacturing of kit uh, supported by deployment in markets with comparative advantages in the resource itself, which Australia has through great wind and solar, caused renewable energy to come down from not being twice the price of the fossil fuel equivalent, but now the same as or cheaper than. 
And so when um, the economics of renewable energy got to that point, you then started to see an economic transformation of the, of the electricity system, which uh, has looked very disorderly and disruptive because the investors want to get into the opportunity because it uh, is uh, positive NPV to do, but sort of run up against all of these uh, regulatory barriers or regulatory challenges that are sitting embedded in this in, a, in, a, in an old thermally based electricity system. So as we're setting about this journey to or continuing this journey to now transform all of this great renewable energy into not just electricity, but into then green hydrogen, you know, we'd be strongly pushing for doing it better this time to get ahead, get ahead of um, those regulatory challenges we've seen in renewables to say, well, as we are going to produce you know, however many million tonnes we aspire to produce in Australia of green hydrogen, what is the enabling regulatory framework that allows that, happen, that, ha that, that, that to happen as quickly as possible so that it's done most efficiently and so that Australia can compete on the global stage uh, with export of green hydrogen, which didn't matter so much in electricity because it's a, you know, a fully domesticated non-export market, but green hydrogen is not. We are going to be competing with other jurisdictions globally. So um, that's hopefully a reasonable overview of you know how do you get from market to regulation and how we can learn from the past um, you know both positive and negative experiences we've had in renewable energy over the last twenty years. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to look at what we have learned in that market. I mean, Kate, from your point of view. What do you see as the key barriers in the development of a genuine hydrogen market in Australia? I'd really like to just turn that question around and, and firstly um, talk about some of the, the reasons Australia is in an amazing fortuitous position in hydrogen because I think that actually gives rise to the discussion around some of the barriers as well. The first point is we have really plentiful land in the in, in the right places. And that's one thing that people don't talk a lot about in this energy transition, but land is going to be an amazing resource. When you think about the scale of renewables, you think about um, uh, transmission, you think about CO2 pipelines and ultimately hydrogen pipelines, having a lot of land is, is, is a real benefit. In addition to that, and this is often talked about, we have great wind and solar resources. And why this is going to be very important from a hydrogen perspective is that when we think about green hydrogen production costs in, say, 2030, our estimate is that about 70% of life cycle cost is going to be the renewable energy cost. And therefore, countries like Australia who have low renewable energy cost are going to be well placed. The third thing we have, which, again, we don't talk about as much as maybe we should in the hydrogen space, is we have some great people we have really good operational and technical expertise as the industry scales up. And this comes from places like the oil and gas industry and indeed the renewables industry itself. We think this is a really important part of the equation as you move from development to construction because the successful projects are going to be those that can really optimise their plant and manage storage and distribution in a, in a successful and efficient way. Finally, we have this huge diesel load in Australia and hydrogen is probably one of the most ready replacements for that. Good example, and, and Rob knows this better than anyone, the Pilbara burns something like 3 billion litres of diesel a year for heavy haul mine trucks, rail haulage, yellow goods and mine operations. Um, and on top of this, we have a mining industry who's made some really pretty 
brave commitments to 2030. So we do have demand if we can only capture it. So having said all of that, they're the good things about hydrogen and the hydrogen industry in Australia. What are the barriers? We're not really like any, you know, different from anywhere else. The two major barriers globally are about scaling demand and in doing that, aggregating that demand and actually developing the complex logistics and infrastructure chains you need to make the hydrogen industry work. It's probably a couple of call-outs though in Australia that people don't think about. Um, one thing is in Europe, what we're seeing is we're seeing hydrogen hubs emerge in places where you've got large industrial clusters. And if you think about large industry, if they can actually sort of average in, um, they can actually decarbonise some of their feedstock progressively, that's an easier thing to do. Um, and where you have a number of users sitting together, you can make a project work at scale now. While we have a lot of potential demand, it's not as concentrated. So that's a bit of an issue for us. The second issue is in and around OEMs. Demand is the key, as I mentioned before. And one of the things we are seeing that because Australia is a small market that's not physically connected, we're struggling to get that commitment of time and cost from the OEMs to actually adapt to our fleets. What I think all of these challenges mean in total is that um, coming back to policy where Rob started, is that the most powerful policy tools Australian governments can use are those that enable or incentivise the creation of load at scale. Good example of this is um, the conversion of government fleets or the use of renewable hydrogen in distribution networks. Those sort of things will actually really help incentivise scale and help get projects up and the industry at scale in this country. Fantastic. Um, I think you've brought up a couple of really good issues there or, or a couple of really great things about Australia and and um, some of the resources that we actually have here and also a couple of the issues. And I think this leads on quite nicely to some questions around actually, well, if we if you do need that land but we don't quite have that concentration of industrial hubs you know where do we locate these plants and i think rob this is really a question that i have for you is how much flexibility do we really have in australia around the location of hydrogen plants so given those, um, you know, opportunities that we have that Kate mentioned, like land, et cetera. Um, but, you know, also looking at, well, we've got a very, um, you know, localised supply of electricity or, or a very long skinny grid. Um, you need water supply, those sorts of things. So with readily available port or pipeline access, so, so what sort of flexibility do we have in that location? And are we really better off trying to, rather than have those large-scale hydrogen plants, looking at more modular plants um, so that they can be decentralised and taken to where they need to be in Australia? So the, the answer really is depends and it's all rel and it's relative because... Um, as Kate mentioned just before, Fortescue burns about 700 million litres of diesel a year, unabated going to a billion. Obviously, our competitors and uh, in, the, in the Pilbara do the same. So, you know, we have a very large demand source already built in. We are already investing through the Pilbara Energy Connect program and through the 
hydrogen fuel cell um, bus and, and coach uh, investment. A very substantial um, fleet of hydrogen fuel cell trucks coming on the side, a, a refueling, a hydrogen refueling program, one and a half uh, megawatt electrolyzer coming later this year. That'll be the biggest in Australia. Uh, and that will be the beginning of um, us decarbonizing and taking out those 700 million litres of diesel a year. Now that is, you know, if you did that on the East Coast, I mean, that'd be very, very substantial. But for us, it's it's sort of the beginning. Um, obviously, and it'll be quite um, uh, bespoke and uh, non or disconnected from anybody else because we'll be satisfying our own needs as, as we transition that mobile fleet. The situation for other industrial users on the East Coast who are connected to the national electricity market will be, again, quite bespoke. You know, there's already a substantial amount of renewable energy sort of corporate type PPAs being done in the market for electricity needs. There's no reason why that wouldn't transition further to having uh, renewable energy electricity PPAs for the use of green hydrogen production. And then, then there will be the, the, the giga hubs, if you want to call them that, which are co-locating a very large renewable energy potential off-grid um, alongside you know, reasonable port facilities or expandable port facilities you know, in, in various locations through South Australia, Western Australia, and even potentially into Queensland. So it sort of <clears throat> depends, but those export hubs will definitely, definitely need to be of scale because the uh, ability to export and carry the hydrogen overseas um, does require that transition from the hydrogen um, as a molecule into a carrier product like ammonia and that's got efficiency losses within it and obviously um, in the early stages of this market where economics is you know are, are um, challenging the less you do that the quicker you will stand up scale of green hydrogen production through electrolysis a bit like in solar panels you know, electrolysis manufacturing economies of scale so that's why Fortescue has set up its 2030 target to be so industry leading. It's, it's going to produce these decarbonisation benefits earlier than anybody else, but it will also stand up very significant uh, demand and um, project development work, which we can then mm. carry through into these giga hubs um, over, the, uh, over the coming decades. Fantastic. So I think that that's a really great... Um, explanation of what Fortescue is actually looking at in terms of its value chain. I think, Kate, turning back to you um, and looking at some of these demand markets that Rob was talking about and you've also talked about, um, as some of those key industries like Rob's industries and other industries look to hydrogen to really assist them in their deep decarbonisation um, goals, is it actually possible when we start to look at the transport part of the supply chain to get those transport costs down in a way that actually makes the getting the hydrogen to market financially viable? Um, you know, a, a, is retrofitting Australia's gas pipeline network the way to go um, or... Do we need new dedicated pipelines or what about road or shipping transportation um, 
you know, what, what do we really need to do to get those costs down at that end? Wow, that's a, a series of very well, that's a big question. series of very <laughs> questions, very complex questions. Let, let me try to sort of tackle them in two pieces because um, I uh, look, there's no absolutely no doubt, and you hear Alan Finkel talk about this a lot that storage and transport are going to really unlock the key to a border hydrogen com- economy but they really do need new technologies and they need R&D investment and they need the cost to come down. So just thinking about transport and transport cost, um, when you look globally, there's, there's sort of no doubt that the cheapest way to transport hydrogen overland at scale is by pipeline. Um, people do talk about tr- trucking, but as a rule of thumb, um, if you get to about um, 0.5 of a PJ of hy- um, hydrogen per year, you, you actually need about 10 tank lorries per day. And when you get to that sort of scale, pipelines start to become much cheaper. Um, and, and when you think about that, um, you can see places like Europe really start to, to be developing plans for hydrogen backbones. Um, however, transporting hydrogen um, in the Asia-Pacific is a little bit more complicated. We, we don't have the same interconnectivity. Um, and, and so obviously you then move to... Um, despite, you know, transport within Australia, you then move to something like um, shipping. And um, as Rob mentioned, there are a variety of forms of carriers of, of hydrogen for shipping, um, you know, the three most common being liquid hydrogen, green ammonia or liquid organic carriers. Um, however, when you think about each of these, each of these have benefits and constraints. And um, when you, you actually look at the conversion and transport costs, they are by definition really expensive. Now, we've done quite a bit of work on this and um, lots of different guesses about how each of these will play out. But if you, th- if you think about a route that many Australian companies or, or, or hydrogen projects would like to, to take hydrogen to, it's sort of Australia to Japan. Our best estimate at the moment is in 2030, that'll be sort of 2 to $3 a kilogram of hydrogen. And, and that makes it really expensive. The only way this is going to change is, is twofold. Um, firstly, scale. Um, Rob was quite right, you're going to need scale. The second is we do need new technologies and there's a lot of great stuff happening in and around that, but it will take time. So in the interim, it is likely you will see, um, you know, hydrogen develop more on a a local basis um, and and that's when pipeline infrastructure comes in. So there's the second part of your question, which is can you retrofit (laughs) pipeline infrastructure? Mm. Um, Our experience to date, and we've looked at this in quite a lot of places, is that distribution infrastructure is actually slightly easier than transmission infrastructure. The reason being is is when you get under higher pressures, you just get more technical issues, so the solution becomes more costly. Having said this, um, we've seen some really interesting studies coming out of Europe that suggest that um, with relatively modern transmission pipelines, they can be converted at about four times less cost than building a new pipeline. And interestingly enough, much of this cost is actually... um, associated with cleaning the pipeline to make it ready for hydrogen. So um, you can actually see um, that, you know, technology and um, scale and, and getting better at doing this, um, that cost will come down. It, perhaps um, a really good thing to think about when you think about um, does this work is, is looking at the Netherlands where um, mm. the um, Hassany, who's the uh, government-owned utility there, is building a hydrogen backbone and, and they're hoping to really start to have that in place by 2027. So it's pretty near term. What they're saying at the moment is they're hoping that up to 85% of that will be actually um, retrofitting existing infrastructure. So, so that gives you a bit of a sense about the ambition out there. 
um, on the transmission side. If you then move to distribution, I think distribution is really exciting. Um, and perhaps the best example globally in distribution is the UK. Um, the UK have done a lot um, about you know, how they might decarbonise heat because it is um, one of their major sources of emissions. Yeah. Um, yep. And when they think about decarbonising heat, the, the two options you obviously have are either electrification or using the existing gas infrastructure. When you think about the load you need to decarbonise heat, the interesting thing in the UK is that um, their peak load in winter is sort of two to three times their normal load. So if you imagine that in, in terms of the build-out you'd need for transmission, if you're actually electrifying the grid, electrifying heat, yeah. it, it's just massive. So I think more and more people are actually thinking that in the UK they will actually convert their, their um, distribution networks to hydrogen. And, and they're actually quite lucky because they've been doing a massive rollout of um, pipelines, um, um, new, new polyethylene pipelines. Um, and we yeah. actually think you only need to tweak that rollout a little bit to mean that by the end of the decade, um, big parts of that network could be hydrogen ready. So long answer to a very complex question, um, but I think in reality, um, if, if you either build new pipelines or you retrofit, it's going to take time. So what does that mean? That means given all the targets that are being set both corporately and actually on an intergovernmental basis, we actually will have to start, see blend, start to see some blending happening in the interim. And we actually yep. think this is, is, is really likely to start to ramp up in, in mid-decade. Right. So it, it sounds like where we're getting at is there's going to be the infrastructure in place at some stage, maybe not immediately, but we do have some transition steps to actually get there um, to solve some of those transportation issues. I guess then I wanted to actually move the conversation a bit towards um, the fundamental of why we're looking at this. And Rob, you pointed this out early on and Kate, you've discussed it as well. And that is around you know, the desire to decarbonise. And Rob, I'd be really interested to see how FFI sees the procurement of the green inputs to hydrogen production unfolding. Um, you know, is it really necessary that we have the renewables absolutely co-located with the hydrogen production plant or will it be enough to acquire green electricity from somewhere else in the grid? Um, look, I think uh, both, both. And, you know, what, why are we doing it? Well, uh, you know, we've got two, two, two main themes in there. One is that we were, it's a fuels transition journey for Fortescue and that fuel transitions journey is happening just as much on an economic basis as it is on a decarbonisation mm. basis. And, uh, you know, we used to burn diesel to make electricity. <laughs> we don't because it was cheaper to use yeah. gas. So we transitioned to gas and now it's cheaper to use renewables. So therefore we do. Now, you know, ultimately getting 100% renewables is a, a technology that's, needs to be unlocked and at cost mm. and capability uh, through storage. But th there's that element. And then the other is that um, it's the right thing to do. It is an existential risk to have temperatures continuing to rise, uh, not only for humankind, but, you know, selfishly for our own industry and our own operations. And that 
you know, we do know that in a decarbonized world, hopefully early in 2050, we still need steel. Um, and so unlike fossil fuels uh, and the industry that's been built around, the company's been built around it, a resources business that's producing a product that's still needed in a decarbonized world uh, <clears throat> can pivot onto the things that help uh, or participate in that new part of, an, of, of the 2050 economy. And, you know, particularly when we're sitting on the inputs, you know, at scale of the thing that our customers of iron ore actually need, which is how to produce steel without using coking coal and producing all the CO2 emissions that come from it. So, you know, our, 20, our 2030 target is for scope one and two. Yep. Our 2040 target is for scope three. So we're basically saying we'll turn our, you know, we, we know that our 2 million tonnes of emissions from mining operations, um, our scope one and two, turn into about just short of 200 million tonnes yep. when you produce the steel. We, we've got to be thinking about how to help our um iron ore customers with that transition. That's why we set the scope three target. Because one thing is for sure is yeah, you know, one thing is for sure is that the coking coal companies are definitely not thinking about helping their customers in the transition. Um, so uh, we've got a you've got that strong vested interest and again it's the right thing to do because they are saying you know in their economies again you know eighty percent of the world's GDP is now covered by twenty fifty targets. Um, as they uh, trying to resolve these challenges. They want to look to um, high quality, reliable supplies of the products that they will need. And in the case of um, producing steel without CO2 emissions, yeah. you can use direct reduced electric arc furnaces and you need green hydrogen in that process. So um, <clears throat> that's why we're doing it. It makes great, you know, ultimately it makes great economic sense and great environmental sense and, and sense for humankind. But the, the the same mentality of uh, you know how do we take further cost you know how are we going to continue the journey for renewable price reduction mm. or cost reduction that we've seen over the last twenty years where you apply a resources mentality to the delivery of it so you know, one thing that the resources sector is really good at is doing very large scale infrastructure projects all day and every day it's just a very large logistics pro progress uh, um, project that you can easily apply the same capabilities and methodologies to in the in the production of large scale solar. And so, instead of you know uh, doing a, a solar farm on the east coast, that's you, know, you do a two hundred megawatt solar farm. It's huge, and you you develop it, you spend all the time getting it set up, and then you build it, and then you have you know some sort of fight at the end about <laughs> getting connected, and it's all quite yes. testy <laughs> and tricky, you know. <laughs> You can think about, you know, knocking out a 200 megawatt solar farm all day or every year for the next 10 years as a piece of sort of OPEX CAPEX. And that's, you know, relative to what else we do in, in the resources sector. So they're bringing that capability and mindset to the production of renewables at scale yeah. uh, will bring that next, next cost reduction, which then flows through to the ability to have green hydrogen produced at a price, mm. which is starting to or transitioning through to being competitive with existing fossil fuel hydrogen. Yeah, and I, I think then sort of looking at that provenance and guarantee of origin um, question, because, Rob, I think you brought up some good points around, you know, what support you're going to need to give your customers, et cetera. And so there's, 
a lot of work I know that's going into guarantee of origin schemes around the world at the moment. Kate, I was wondering in terms of that work and the green credentials here, do you think that there's a place for a global standard to be developed for guarantees of origin or do you think actually a jurisdictional approach, um, a jurisdiction by jurisdiction approach will work for that? And and then I guess as a secondary question to that, how actually how important are those sorts of certifications going to be to the ultimate market? Uh, great question. <laughs> and I'd love to have all the answers, <laughs> but, but let me give it a go. Um, look, I, I think um, currently the origins of hydrogen and, and their carbon ten- intensity, or, or let's call it CI for short, um, are probably less of an issue is that the industry scales up for a lot of players, not all, but a lot. Um, and in fact, we're seeing really interesting yep. things happen in places like South Korea where they're recognising the need for clean hydrogen, um, but they can't get it yet. So what they're actually doing is building out their, their hydrogen infrastructure using grey hydrogen with an intent once they get to scale to then be able to import it. Um, so, so at the moment, for people like that, it, it, the CI is not, not such a big issue. But clearly, clearly, as corporates focus on the accuracy of carbon accounting um, and as disclosures, you know, carbon transparency is going to become critical. So as they become more and more important, mm. actually accounting for all the CI a user um, expends when they actually use hydrogen is going to become increasingly important. Um, and I think the world is moving to hydrogen over a period becoming a, a, a global commodity, and we've talked about this quite a lot today. Um, as this happens, I think Australia yeah. has already recognised that there's going to be a need for both transparency and assurance around the emissions footprint for any hydrogen produced. And as you point out, you know, one thing we like to say is not, you know, not all hydrogen is equal um, and some will have degrees of greenness um, and certainly the process of certifying is going to become more and more difficult as you get into different forms of hydrogen. So the simplest is obviously going to be um, connected to behind the metre solar. As you get to a grid-connected electrolyzer, it becomes more complex to actually account for um, the, the CI. As you then go along and start to think about things like blue hydrogen, it, it, it becomes more complex again because you're actually then having to think about the emissions, including the fugitive emissions um, that may relate to gas production and processing. So, you know, what's Australia doing in this regard to try to make um, set that footprint to, to be transparent? Um, well, we are developing, as you'd be aware, a guarantee of origin scheme. And yes. to, to inform design of this scheme, and the Australian government's been really supportive. They've asked the Clean Energy Regulator to run trials collaboratively with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. There's um, a consultation paper that's been put out. Um, and an early focus on, on, on the trials will be to ask industry to really test carbon accounting methods for their hydrogen production pathways. So, so that'll give us a really good understanding of how this might work. And actually, it should put Australia in at the forefront of providing transparency to end users. Um, hopefully, though, um, all of this would actually contribute to a global standard. And um, I, I think um, as we move towards that, there'll be some really interesting issues that arise as well. Um, the one that I'm really fascinated about is mm. um, 
when will different pricing come in for different molecules of, of hydrogen? Um, interestingly enough, if you look at the biofuels industry um, and you look at some of the, the transport schemes in the US, that hasn't happened yet, but people are anticipating it will. Um, so um, certification will certainly hopefully speed up that process and enable that differential pricing to come in and to incentivise people to actually lower um, the emissions footprint regardless of the form of hydrogen they're producing. So long answer um, to your very short question in this case, um, I think Australia's sort of leading the way and certainly that there will be schemes out on a jurisdictional basis. But over time, as with any globally traded commodity, you need consistency. So you will have to see a global standard emerge. Okay, can I just, can I just add, add to that just a little bit? Because I think you know, to just to reinforce, we are in a great position. When, when we set about trying to pull through demand for renewable energy, we did choose the renewable energy target as a market-based mechanism with the production of an instrument uh, which, you know, one megawatt hour equal one tonne of CO2. So we've got a long track record now through the CR producing these credits and having them assured and having them surrendered. You know, other, other markets went to feed-in tariffs or the US with tax credits. And so they haven't quite got the experience in the uh, how to instrumentationalise, if that's a word, the uh, production of renewable energy. And you know, you've got to remember green hydrogen is just um, uh, molecules of, of green electricity, really. So... We've got that head start, and uh, it is great that the CER is doing its work now on, you know, making this old LGC, the the, the uh, credit system under the under the renewable energy target, um, fungible, because that actually then opens up an enormous potential for Australia to start thinking about how to take those fungible instruments and provide them to any uh, market where there are, you know, companies making voluntary commitments to decarbonise and offset, and you know bearing in mind most of us and are saying it will be net you know net zero by some particular date and so we do need high quality verified and assured credits such as what the CEO has been doing been doing with the, with a new renewable energy target I mean I think it's a really good point Rob because um, it reminds me very much of um, the days when we were looking at as a nation, um, you know, looking at maybe putting in place a, a carbon market and looking at, you know, acceptance of other jurisdiction certificates within that market, etc., which was all around the robustness of these credits and credit creation. And I do think Australia has done really well because, you, as you point out, you know, we've, we've not only got the LGCs and those certificates, but we've also got a lot of experience in um, the creation and verification of certificates like ACUs as well, we, which at the start were really difficult to try and quantify and creating those markets. So I think you're right. We've got um, a lot of a wealth of knowledge there that we can take to the world. Um, well, I think actually we are out of time so Kate Rob thank you very very much for coming and talking about hydrogen um, with me for a while it was great having you both thank you pleasure thanks Kate you've been listening to energy transformed a podcast and webinar series that looks beyond the headlines to take a deep dive into Australia's energy transition, brought to you by Ashurst and Renew Economy. In today's podcast, How Close is the Green Hydrogen Economy? 
you heard Rob Grant, the Director of Energy for Fortescue Metals Group, and Kate Bidchen, the Global Head of Industrial Transition and Clean Fuels at Macquarie Capital. The discussion was moderated by my colleague, Kate Phillips, a partner in the energy practice at Ashes. I'm Paul Kernow, Ashes Global Co-Head of Energy. In the next part of our Energy Transform series, we'll be discussing how we can electrify Australia in a live webinar on Wednesday the 24th of November. You'll find the details on the Renew Economy website. I hope you can join us then.